Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Stuart. Uh, thank you for those who said good morning, Stuart. Um, and, uh, oh, that's echoing. I'll be um, speaking this morning. So why don't we pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that as it's open to us, we can see something of your majesty and uh, something of who you are and how great you are. Please help us to understand more of you, to come to get to know you closer and to thank you for what you've done. Amen. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this show, a Utopia, find it on iTube. Uh, sorry, I view. Uh, do yourself a favour, as Molly Meldrum used to say. Go and watch it. It's, it's worth it. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good show. Uh, it's a very relatable show, especially if you've ever worked in a large corporation like a bank or a school or, a, a, say, a local council. Um, the premise of most episodes is that someone in government has a brilliant idea, uh, a utopian dream of some new project which is left to the nation-building authority to actually put structure to. And what they find is it's only a dream. <laughs> As they try to work through all the problems there, uh, they see the scheme will never get off the ground. And the team leader, Tony, uh, the project manager, uh, you see his sense of disillusionment and disappointment on his face. Just another grandiose idea. And it can leave you feeling uh, very cynical about your own working environment. I think that's the beauty of the show. You start to look at it and think, no, this is where I work, and it's exactly the same. Utopian dreams are not new, are they? We've had a lot of them in France. Uh, they dreamt of uh, equality and fraternity and uh, liberty, and it ended in bloody revolution. Marxist dream in Russia was a, a dream of uh, a new society where everyone was equal. That included the death of 14,000, sorry, 14 million Russians to start that dream going. I had a utopian dream of a sleepover last night with three of my grandchildren. <laughs> I asked them what they like to eat. This was weeks ago, because I knew it was coming up. I got the food, I got a DVD I knew they'd like. I even bought some new toys I thought they'd play with. My dream was shattered. <laughs> I guess it sums up at about 10 o'clock at night when the three-year-old said, Grandpa, I can't find my dummy. Look under your bed. Where is it? No, I threw it at Angus. That's why you can't find it. Yeah. Anyway, I'm here. I'm awake. Christmas sometimes can be a utopian dream, can't it? I think we all experience that because maybe we've had a Christmas that really worked and we think this one's going to work too. You know the kind of dream where... Everybody actually turns up that says they're going to turn up. Everyone who said they'd bring a plate brings a plate. They don't all bring the same salad. The cousins aren't killing each other. No one nearly drowns in the pool. And the blokes wash up while the ladies play cricket. <laughs> now, it's only a dream. <laughs> the reality is we're flawed beings, aren't we? Changing our environment or improving technology or medical and scientific breakthroughs, or even giving the women equal pay, doesn't bring about uh, the change that we want because we need to change the nature of our hearts. Looking for heaven on earth sounds good, but it's never going to be a reality whilst we are in it, 
unredeemed. Isaiah the prophet paints for us a picture of a utopian world. We see this in chapter 60 of his prophecy. Uh, It's a dream, but it's not his dream. It's God's dream for the reality to come. Let me read some of it to you. No need to look it up. And uh, I know it's pretty tight there to see that, but let's try and read some of it. Chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. In you, the riches of the nations will come. It's a brilliant picture, isn't it? Everyone is good, evil is banished. And at the end of the chapter, God signs off on this vision. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time, I will do this swiftly. The time will come when this promised future comes about. But this is not that time. This is not that moment because it has to be built, not on us, but on the one described for us in chapter 61. If you've got your Bibles there, you might like to open it. We're going to sort of stay in chapter 61 and launch from that to a couple of other passages, which will come up on the screen. But if you stay with 61 of the book of Isaiah, that would be helpful. Have a look at verse 2, you get a, a, the nature of the vision of this dream. Uh, the writer says, uh, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. See the second half of that picture there? On that day, there will be a day of vengeance. Now, Isaiah spells this out in chapter 63. If you look at the heading there, it says God's day of vengeance. And so we have to wait to see what that day of vengeance is about. Uh, But between the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance, between those two points, we find ourselves uh, with the spotlight falling on the one who will bring all this to pass. And in this chapter, we see several voices speaking. Uh, Verses 1 through to uh, 7, we've got someone speaking. 8 to 9, we've got the Lord speaking. Uh, 10 and following, we've got, uh, sounds like a human speaking in response to what the Lord has said. But who's speaking in these first seven verses? Let's see if we can work that one out. Who's the speaker here? Well, it sounds like the voice of the Messiah. But how can we be sure? Well, let's go back in Isaiah and see what it says. Uh, The words start off, uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. This is the Lord of Exodus fame, isn't it? This is the Lord who brings judgment and redemption to his people. He saves his people by judging others. It's this spirit of this God that rests on the speaker here. But let's go back for a minute to uh, other passages in Isaiah to find out. Uh, chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, which we looked at earlier uh, in this series, 
we found out that this one who is to be born will be given divine names, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. In chapter 11, we see a root will come from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And we're told he'll be given the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and power. In chapters 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, uh, he's referred to here as a servant who suffers for his people. So Isaiah builds up this picture for us of who this person is. This person who is both divine and king and also servant is the Messiah. That's the figure that's presented here. Now, at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, as we just read, into his hometown. The synagogue leader hands him the scroll. He turns to the reading for the day from the book of Isaiah, and he reads the words there, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. When he finishes speaking, he rolls the scroll up and all eyes look on him. And he begins to say to them today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah the prophet caught up in his spirit. In his day, here's the Messiah speaking. And 700 years later, in the backwaters of Israel, in the town of Nazareth, the Messiah reads the words from Isaiah. And we see them written there, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Interestingly, he stops in the middle of that last paragraph. Because remember in Isaiah it says, and the day of vengeance of the Lord. You see, this writer wants to concentrate on that extended period of grace and favour in which we find ourselves today. That's what Jesus is about. It's not saying that he won't talk about the day of vengeance. Oh, he will. But right now, he's come to the world to offer grace. No one actually said more about uh, the day of vengeance in the New Testament than Jesus. Uh, He tells us it will be a day uh, of which there'll be fury and anguish and distress and judgment and destruction, and Jesus himself will come as the judge. But Jesus contrasts that day, which is to come, with this day, the year of the Lord's favour. This is the day of salvation. Today is a day you can hear the good news and respond to it. Today is a day you can hear the good news and take it out to the people and neighbours that you have in Oran Park. But don't ever doubt that that day of destruction will come. When Jesus came that first time, the sign that accompanied him was swaddling clothes, those baby clothes as he lay in the major. When he comes the second time, we're told that the sign of his coming will be his glory, the glory of the Lord, and every eye, not just a few shepherds, will see him. Listen to Jesus' own words. At the end of history then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not this day. 
This is the day of salvation. This is a day when God purposely postpones judgment in order to pour grace upon grace upon you. All humanity shares God's common grace. He gives us the sun to shine, the wind to blow, the rain falls, he restrains evil and wickedness and vice and he gives us a society in which we can survive and live in. Enjoy this day but don't waste it. This is the day of God's favour when you can hear about God and share it with others. You know, every 50 years uh, for the Jews, uh, they had what's called the day or the year of Jubilee, in which this passage in Isaiah refers to. On that day, the ram's horn was blown, and at the sound, every debt would be cancelled, every slave set free, and all property returned to its original owner. Talked about in Bible study the other day, and I think some people were clapping, thought that was a great idea. But that's exactly what Jesus, the Messiah, has promised to do. Remember his words? Those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. Jesus has come to free us. This is the good news. Look how he spells it out here. It's good news for the poor. Now, in Isaiah's day, the poor were not just the economically poor. Even back then, the poor were those who had a right understanding of themselves and their relationship with God. The poor are people who knew they had nothing. They couldn't barter with God. They couldn't get themselves out of debt. They owed God, but they couldn't repay God. They're the spiritually poor. You know, Jesus uses this chapter from Isaiah as a script for his own sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to take you to chapter 5 of Matthew, but no need to turn it up. If you stay with Isaiah, I'll try and draw the connection between what Jesus says the sermon, and uh, Isaiah, as he's written it down here. Uh, Jesus begins uh, his sermon where Isaiah begins. Let me read it to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the only people who come to God's kingdom are the spiritually poor, those who have a right understanding of themselves, those who realise they can't negotiate, they can't bargain with God about how good they are, and how good they've been at Christmas to come into a relationship with him. Remember the old hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And those who know their spiritual poverty mourn and grieve over their sin. And God promises the mourners in Isaiah's day that they will be comforted, as does Jesus here in Matthew. And Isaiah goes on to expand what this means. He says, instead of grief and mourning and heaviness, there will be the oil of gladness and the garment of praise. That's what God's on about, changing us and transforming us and giving us these things. He's going to make them, as we see in Isaiah, oaks of righteousness. And Jesus, in his own sermon, said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. A little further down in Isaiah, we see a promise made that the people will be restored to the land and given back all that they've lost. Have a look at verse 7 in Isaiah. 
Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. And Jesus says in his sermon, the meek will inherit the earth. Those people who are happy to see themselves in the light of God and they're happy to see that others see them in that light of their repentance and their shame before God. Can you see how Jesus speaks through Isaiah the prophet? He speaks to us in our own brokenness, in the broken world in which we live. Building a utopia depends on good people living in harmony with one another. I was listening to the radio the other day and John Lennon's song, Imagine, came on. It's a lovely song, but it's a load of nonsense. It doesn't work. I listened to the song on a CD the other day called I Can Only Imagine and I looked at the difference between the two. You'll have to look at the words of the second one to understand what I mean. A utopian Christmas, well, it's just a myth. It could be good, but it'll never be as good as we really want. I don't know why you've come to church this morning. I don't know if your life is broken in some way or another, if you're harbouring bitterness and there's pain that you think can never be healed. Perhaps you're dreading Christmas. Perhaps you're just dreading the idea of uh, all the money you have to spend on people you, you rarely see, or in fact some of them you don't even like. Perhaps you're dreading the idea of being alone at Christmas. Or giving in to your addictions of gluttony and perhaps alcohol abuse. Or the fear of failure in the kitchen, not being able to come up with the, you know, the, the food that everybody wants because something goes wrong. The fear of relationships turning sour, whatever it is. Jesus claims to release us from those things because... He goes to the very heart of the problem and he begins to speak the process of freeing us from our past and freeing us from our bondage and freeing us from bitterness and from those destructive memories we have. That's what Jesus is on about. And he wants to do something else. He announces a new name and a new status. Have a look at Isaiah again, uh, verse 3, the second half of verse 3. I'll read all of verse 3. And provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown and beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see, you and I don't make ourselves like this, do we? We don't, we don't plant ourselves to become a display for our splendor. This is a gift from God. It's for his glory, not ours. In fact, this work of God goes further. It brings in the community of believers, everyone. Notice in those following verses, we see aliens and foreigners, those outside of the company of believers brought in so they too might be called ministers of the gospel, those who are part of the kingdom of God. It brings a community together. And it brings us all into real and uninhibited access to God. And in his presence, you receive his utopia, that beautiful vision, that beautiful vision of a new heavens and a new earth that is promised with everlasting joy. This is what you get with Jesus. 
This is a program far bigger than our imaginations can come up with. He's come to transform us and make us ready to live in that new heaven and that new earth. So there's the voice of the Messiah announcing his mission. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He's come to transform and heal and begin that process of making us more like himself. He's come to announce the year of the Lord's favour. So as you sweat over the Christian Christmas food or you wrap up those last-minute presents, remember the bigger picture. Enjoy God's common grace of fair weather, food, friends and family and thank God for his saving grace in sending Jesus into our broken and our brittle world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus coming to change us and transform us and renew us and restore us. Help us to respond in love and adoration at this Christmas time, not to worry about the little things, but to ponder on the big. Amen.